KYW Original Podcasts. From the KYW Studios in Philadelphia, this is Cinema Obscura. In the wake of Star Wars, space operas were all the rage. From the small screen with Battlestar Galactica and Buck Rogers, to big screen efforts like Star Crash and Battle Beyond the Stars. None of them had the budget or the technical virtuosity to match George Lucas's blockbuster, but that didn't stop one Japanese movie from trying. I'm Andre Bennett, joined by Frank Trainer, and this week we're talking about the 1978 sci-fi adventure Message from Space. Hi, Frank. Thanks for having me again, Andre. And uh, I think I told you, I saw this shortly after it came out when I was living and working down in West Virginia at a local drive-in in the middle of nowhere, and that's probably a great place to see a film like this. I would probably agree if I had that uh, experience, and now I'm jealous because I wish I had. Before we get a little further, let's start things off with a clip from the movie. Earth is on the verge of annihilation. That must not happen. Garuda, I want you to go see Roxea, the Earth's special envoy. Special envoy? Mm-hmm. What are you saying? They demand we surrender unconditionally. They have given us only three days to comply. Your mission is to give me more time. I see. What the Earth needs is more time to prepare for an attack. But why do you want me for this special mission? Why? Do you remember what I, uh, what I called you when we were in school together? I remember. Don Quixote. Mm-hmm. Now you know why you're the one that was chosen. You're the only one in the world that would go out and take on a giant with only a lance. So that's the late Vic Morrow starring in this movie as a war-hardened general drawn into a fight to save the galaxy from an invading empire. And that's what I liked about this film when I passed by this drive-in in the middle of nowhere. Of course, he had top billing, and I had grown up watching Vic Morrow on combat where he played uh, Sergeant Saunders, and I really liked him in that and hadn't seen him in many other things, a couple of TV movies here and there, and I was anxious to see this, and I guess they chose the right guy because you need a grizzled guy in that role, and he fit the bill just perfectly. Yeah, he really gives it the sort of gravitas that I'm not sure would have had otherwise. The one thing that I thought was interesting back then and odd now is that when you first meet him, he's in his Starfleet uniform, I guess it is. And then when he's in the bar hanging with his little droid, he has this weird costume on. It sort of looks like a cross between Doctor Who and Sherlock Holmes. And I just couldn't quite figure out, okay, what is this what people are supposed to look like in the future? It, it was an odd way to portray somebody in the future hanging out with his droid at a bar getting hammered. But there's also like a tiny bit of dolomite with that coat because that was kind of a pimp coat. <laughs> yeah, it was. It was. Yes. It really was. So Morrow plays General Garuda. He's one of eight people who were chosen by the people of the planet Jalusha. Jalusha is a peaceful planet that has been conquered and ruined by the Gavanis Empire ruled by the evil Emperor Roxea. And if this all sounds really, really, really kind of silly to you, imagine how Star Wars sounded to people in 1976 before it came out. 
Yeah, you're right. And like you said, Star Wars often imitated, never equaled. And there are some mistakes that you can find today if you watch this online or streaming. And one of the things I thought was pretty odd is that all these space cowboys that are eventually enlisted to help save the universe. You know, they do like a scene, I guess, from Star Wars where they're, you know, going in between big mountains and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And they crash. And as soon as they get out of their space vehicles, you can see power lines and telephone poles <laughs> in the background. And I never saw that, you know, back in 1978 or 9 when I first saw this. But I did see this go around. And I guess the budget was what it was. And uh, It was for- actually the most expensive Japanese movie of the time. I think really? it cost about five, six million dollars, which was half of what Star Wars cost. Yeah. But still, for, I guess, a Japanese movie at that time, it's very expensive. The miniature work is really good. It's just in a post-Star Wars world, yeah. it's still not up to snuff. Yeah, it doesn't, it doesn't quite hold up. But what still holds up is the magic seeds that all of these guys yes. and gals who they put together as this band of heroes that are going to save the galaxy – I thought that was really interesting, and yes. uh, th- that still holds up today, I think, that, that animation yeah. and uh, special li- effects. Yeah, the Liabe seeds, which were used to find the eight heroes, I guess that's technically the message from space. This is a very literal title in that the uh, people of Jalusia send this message, this SOS, to whoever can get it. So the elder of the uh, Jalusian people sends these seeds out to magically select eight people. And sends his granddaughter, the Princess Emeralita, out to find them, her and her bodyguard. And that's a parallel between this and Star Wars in that you have the princess who can defend herself. And then amongst the heroes, you've got the whiny teenager. You've got the charming rogue who is also the grizzled mentor. So you've got Han Solo and Obi-Wan combined in Vic Morrow. Yeah, and he does have the cute little sassy robot. And I guess some of the uh, battle scenes, I think, still hold up today from when they were first put together back then. And knowing that they had a modest, at best, budget, it's all that more impressive. Yeah, the director, Kinji Fukusaku, was coming off this five-part series of movies called The Yakuza Papers, a crime drama about the history of the Yakuza. Thinly fictionalized. Also, to my knowledge, he directed a lot of the Japanese scenes in Tora Tora Tora. Which was a great, great action film. And he also made The Green Slime. So he had a facility with sci-fi, but also was able to do action. And this combined both of those things. If you're saying to yourself now, listening to us, you know, I might try to find that and give it a look. It's definitely worth a look. You'll be intrigued with uh, some of the plot points, and if you're a fan of Vic Morrow and his work, you'll love to see this because you may have missed it in his great body of work. And the music isn't bad. You know, the music is not bad. That's one of the things that uh, I think is also held up throughout the years. And it's a decent story. It's not a great story. Good special effects, not great by any stretch of the imagination compared to what we see now and what we saw in Star Wars many years ago. But it's a good film. It's got a very handmade quality to it. It's part of the uh, Japanese genre called tokusatsu, which loosely means special photography or special effects. So the miniature work, all of that is really part of that tokusatsu tradition. Tokusatsu is kind of a wide-ranging term. You have superhero stuff like Power Rangers that fit in there. Kaiju movies, giant monster movies like Godzilla fit in there. 
for me, it's very fun to watch because there's that charm to it of just seeing this thing that was built very painstakingly and, and very, in, in as much detail as possible. These models have so much detail. And uh, they're designed by the artist Shotaro Ishinomori, who also co-wrote the story. And Ishinomori is best known as the creator of the show Kamen Rider, which is known over here as Masked Rider. And also he created Go Ranger, which was the very first precursor to what we now know as Power Rangers. It was the first in the Super Sentai series. And the Super Sentai series most famously have been adapted in America as Power Rangers. So he's really kind of like this flashpoint in Japanese popular culture. And as you said, there's there's so much detail in this film. And as I rewatched it uh, before we sat down here, I was thinking, okay, did I miss it long, long ago? What was the message from space? So at the very end of the film, when Vic Morrow is invited along with all these heroes who do save the galaxy to, mm-hmm. to come to Earth as the planet that they can call their home. He chooses not to. Yeah. And he turns to his droid. And I wrote this down because I thought, well, maybe this is it. Maybe this, maybe this was the buildup to the big message from space. And Vic's character says, there are more beautiful dreams in space. So keep your eyes on the stars. That's a very, very, very heartfelt message that this movie chooses to end on. And it really sums up the heart of the movie because for a film that's very derivative of Star Wars, it's also surprisingly heartfelt. And there's not just Star Wars in the DNA. It's actually a very loose adaptation of a classic Japanese novel called Nanso Setomi Hakenden, which is about eight warriors who are spiritually descended from a dog who are scattered about and have to be found and united to fulfill their destiny. So this movie takes trace elements from that. Fukusaku actually went back to that, and I think five years later, he directed a more faithful adaptation called Legend of the Eight Samurai. But it's one of those works that has persisted through Japanese culture and has been adapted a number of times in live action and animation in a variety of genres. I'll see. When you tune in to Cinema Obscura, you always learn something. I, I had no idea that the, the background message for this film went as deep into the Japanese culture as you just so artfully explained. It's a better considered movie than people realize or remember, I think. We have one more clip here, and this is where they're developing their big plan to defeat the evil Gavanis Empire. What about your people? Our spaceship there. It is still able to navigate. The women and children can leave on it. With the will of the gods, they may make it. Well, the only trouble is to figure out a way to get through their defenses. There's a spiral tube. These right to their furnaces. It's only about 10 meters in diameter. There must be a way. It's impossible to destroy that reactor. We can't do it. Roxaya will be master of our universe. What did he say, 10 meters in diameter? How about threading the needle? What did you have in mind? We'll dive right into the spiral thing with our ship. Now, the Gavanas would never think anyone would be nuts enough to try and fly a spaceship right into their castle. It's risky, but it might work. That tunnel is only 10 meters side to side. One mistake and you've had it. Hey, 
We've gone tunneling lots of times. It's a hobby. Yeah, tunneling's very common on Earth. We've done even narrower ones. And anyway, we got no other choice. Now we can get inside. Maybe that's why they were chosen by the leave they seeds. It feels like every time there's a movie like this, it always comes down to flying a small ship through a uh, very tight space and making a one in a million shot. Right, exactly. (laughs) And it's a good action sequence, too. It really is. And even though it definitely feels like the Death Star run, it also prefigures the Death Star run from Return of the Jedi, in which they have to actually fly into the bowels of the Death Star and hit the reactor. In fact, even the reactor in that movie kind of looks like a better version of the one in this movie, which makes me think, I wonder if George Lucas actually was aware of Message from Space when he had ILM design that sequence in Return of the Jedi later on. Could be. Yeah, possibly. This is a strange, strange movie. It's a movie where, like, one of the main heroes doesn't show up until, like, two-thirds through it. And that's the guy who's second bill, Sonny Chiba, as uh, Prince Hans, the true heir to the Gavanas throne. There's a very sad scene where this old lady who up until this point was a villain is reliving her childhood and i watched that scene the first time and i remember tearing up it's a movie that has the sassy droid as one of the better characters because he's legit kind of funny and also has this moment towards the end where even he finds out that he's one of the chosen this movie really got to me the first time I watched it to the point where I was wondering, what is, what is up with me right now? <laughs> <laughs> well, you have the advantage of knowing all the backstory that you told our listeners about, about the deep-rooted cultural aspects from Japanese history that are woven through this. When, when I saw it back in 78 or 79 at a drive-in in the outskirts of West Virginia, I just thought, wow, this is kind of crazy. And I did not have the opportunity to have seen Star Wars yet. So I actually, yeah, yeah. Well, down there, there weren't that many movie theaters around. You had to go pretty far to go to a a big movie theater. So this drive-in was getting like the second and third string movies. And and I saw this and I thought, well, it's pretty good. You know, I enjoyed it and it it was a good night for me. And then when I saw Star Wars, I thought, whoa, wait a minute. Yeah, it's like everything changed. Yeah, which one came first? And for me, this was first. I saw this before Star Wars. And to me, that's a very unique advantage because very few people can say that they saw this movie before they saw Star Wars because it came out first. So for most people, contemporaneous to 1977 or so, that's what they saw first and everything else that came after was basically scraps. Whereas everyone from my generation and onward, Star Wars was a formative part of our cultural being. And then you see a movie like Message from Space and most people would think it just looks silly. And for me, who really enjoys Japanese tokusatsu movies and and shows, it's charming but still not Star Wars. But you had this opportunity where you saw this movie – and so it wasn't an instant disappointment to you like no, it would have been. All. Yeah. No. And like I told you, they had me at Vic Morrow. When, yes. I, when, I saw, when I saw his name on the marquee, I thought, boy, I hadn't seen him in a long time. So when I had a day off, I went down and saw it and I enjoyed it a lot. Then when I saw Star Wars, I was thinking to myself, well, you know, which came first? And there was no internet back then and you had a hard time figuring out. So I just thought, well, it's good. And then... All these years later, I get a chance to sit down and watch it over again and go back and forth and look at various scenes. And they did a good job. 
And it's a it's a decent story, not a great story, but it's a decent story. And if you compare the two, uh, you're going to shoot a lot of holes in this one. But if yeah. you don't, if you take each one as a separate entity, like you were explaining, we should. That's the best way to watch this, I think. And you'll enjoy this and you'll appreciate Star Wars and anything that maybe Star Wars did borrow from this a little later. Yeah. Like I said, the whole sequence in Return of the Jedi, kind of strange when you think about it. But Message from Space is a pretty fun watch. It is. Message from Space 1978. And it's available currently on Amazon Prime to stream. You can find it on DVD through Shout Factory. And I believe there's a company, Discotech Media, that is preparing to release a Blu-ray of the follow-up TV series, Message from Space Galactic Wars, which I'm really interested in seeing. It stars Hiroyuki Sanada, who played Shiro in the movie. And I'd like to see what they did to continue the story from there. They actually did release it to video, like condensed in America as Space Ninja. But I read that it also was broadcast later as Swords of the Space Arc on Christian Broadcasting. Hmm. Uh, do you have any recollection of that at all? No, no. I, I didn't know there was a follow-up, and, uh, and now I'm intrigued. I wouldn't mind seeing that myself. Definitely want to check that out as well. Before we go, a reminder that you can join the conversation on Twitter at CObscurapod. We're ready for your comments and questions about this episode and previous episodes, and we might even take a few on the show. You ready for that, Frank? I am. I am. And thank you again for having me along for the ride, and thanks for listening. Cinema Obscura. And I'm Andre Bennett with Frank Trainer. Cinema Obscura is recorded and produced at the KYW Studios in Philadelphia. For more shows, check out the Radio.com app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Thanks for listening. Stop! You are ordered to stop! Please obey the code! Will you stop? Shut up, man!